This morning, if you would turn with me to Exodus chapter 25. Uh, Maybe a book that you don't oftentimes read, but among the Pentateuchal books, which are the first five books, it's actually kind of exciting. At least the first half is very exciting. Uh, the second half, which has to do with law, you know, is the you know, it's the genre literary style of law, begins to kind of bog some people down. But that's actually where we're headed this morning: is into the law, uh, which most people don't ever tread that in their messages. And quite frankly, it is more difficult uh, to tread into the law. And hopefully, some of you that are tired will make it with me through the law. But nonetheless, we'll make it one way or the other. <laughs> I'll make it if nobody else follows. Um, But we will look here at Exodus 25, and I want to begin reading here with 23. Remember that, uh, just a little context here, in chapter 20, you actually get the law. So, up to this point in the book, they've been traveling, you know, the book starts out in Egypt, right? It ends at Mount Sinai. So they travel from Egypt to Sinai and God reveals Himself there at Mount Sinai. And so it, that's, that revelation really kind of begins at chapter 20 and we're going to pick up at 25, okay? And 23. And you shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits, two cubits uh, shall be its length and a cubit its breadth and a cubit and a half its height. Uh, you shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make around it a frame, a handbreadth wide, and a molding of gold around the frame. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings uh, to the four corners of its four legs. Close to the frame, the rings shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And the table shall be carried with these. And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense and its flagons and bowls with which to pour libations. Of pure gold you shall make them and you shall set the bread of presence on the table before me always. Let us pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. And Jesus says, Your Word is life. And so as we break open the bread of life this morning, the Word of God, may You meet with us and speak into our hearts this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, this morning, I want to begin this way, by saying when you see two people doing the same thing, they're not always doing the same thing. <laughs> That's kind of interesting, you maybe maybe uh, are going to cringe at me a little bit on that one, but the reality is when you see Jackson playing football with his peewee football group, they're playing football. And yet when you see the professionals, or maybe Alabama last night playing football, running some of the same plays they would run, which are mainly running plays, uh, they're doing the same thing. (laughs) But they're not doing the same thing. (laughs) Does that make sense? 
They're doing the same thing all right, but they're not by any means doing the same thing. Because most of them on the line, on Jackson's team, are not even paying attention. Uh, They're more hugging one another than blocking one another. Now, they're still getting the blocking done, but it's more like a hug. Uh, It's more like a pat, you know. Um, And then here comes some big guy through the middle and running. So, think of football. Think of back in the Romans' world, uh, in early Christianity when the earliest Christians would take communion and they would say, take, eat, this is my body and this is my blood, well, the Romans would look at that and hear the same thing the Christians are hearing, but they're not hearing the same thing. They would say, we were cannibals, which is exactly what they called them. They said, yeah, there's some kind of, they're in there eating somebody. You know, I don't know what's going on, but they're in there talking about eating somebody. So, they are a mystery cult. Really, I mean, we have writings from early Roman citizens who who write about the fact that, well, Christians were cannibals. So, when someone is doing something, they're not always doing the same thing even though they're doing the same thing. <laughs> now, I'm going to show you what that means even more as we look into to this text here in Exodus 25, which you may be thinking, man, what in the world is there to squeeze out of this one? You know? Uh, I mean, he's talking about building a table that can be moved with poles. You know, he's, he makes you have a table made of this special wood, and you have a table that can then be uh, put in poles and moved specially so it doesn't get broken, and it's overlaid with gold. And apparently, there's supposed to be this uh, bread of the presence, uh, as I think the ESV translates it, on the table before God always. It's interesting when you go back and look at ancient documents of other religions, which which I do. Uh, may not be a hobby of yours, but it's it's one of mine. Uh, so leave me alone about it. But I go back and I, I look at these other religions, and and you know they too offer and do a lot of the same things that the Hebrew people do, the Israelites do. I mean. There's a sacrificial system, and every religion in the ancient world had a sacrificial system. Now you have that you ran in that term libation, which is a drink offering. You pour it out. So you, you mix up your best wine and you pour it out for the God. Because why? Well, if we like wine, good wine, surely the gods do. I mean they do they do what we do in excess. Which is why even uh, you know, if you say, well, look how, look how sexually charged our culture is, so was theirs. You know, if, if we like sex, so do the gods. So how do you get them excited? Well, orgies, which is exactly what they would do in the ancient world as part of their worship. Uh, remember, prostitution only happened in the temple in the ancient world, not in the bad part of town. You went to the temple to get a prostitute because a prostitute was sacred. To give up your virginity was powerful. Therefore, the God uh, would actually be an avatar of the woman who wanted to give up her virginity. And so even sometimes before you got married, you would go have sex with one of the, um, one of the gods of fertility. If you wanted to be fertile in your life, if you wanted your marriage to be fertile, you went and had sex with Ashtoreth. For instance, you remember the Ashtoreth poles in the Old Testament that they're always trying to get rid of? That was Ashtoreth. She was the fertility god of the Canaanites who were bumping into the Israelites constantly, right? In the land of Canaan, which is where they get their name Canaanites. 
Alright, so there's some similarities here. And so what, what a lot of people have done is say, hey, look, uh, the Israelites are just some other cult. And, and obviously then this would be myth, right? This is not historical. This is just myth, mythological. I mean, they're just doing the same thing that everybody else is doing. There's no difference here. And that's why I began by saying, sometimes when you see people doing the same thing, they're not doing the same thing. So, are we feeding God? I mean, let's just get the question out there. Are we paying God when we take up our offering to kind of bring it to modern times? Is that what we're doing? I mean, that's what the world would say, wouldn't it be? Oh, you're just paying God. They're just paying off God, you know? Get what they want from them, they're paying them off. You give a little bit to God, He gives some back to you. You give a lot to God, He gives a lot back to you. Is that what they're doing? Is that what we're doing? Did we have to always, you know, did, did Moses and were they told this by God because he was hungry? Is that what's going on? Put bread before me, make my own little table here before me, and, and keep bread on it, fresh bread, because I'm, I'm hungry. You've got to feed me. Which is exactly what the pagans thought in the ancient world. I mean, we like good food. You're probably already thinking, where am I going to eat lunch, or what am I going to eat lunch? For lunch. Uh, so do the gods. The gods are us on a higher level, on an extreme level. If we do one thing, they do it to the extreme. They're living life large. It's like, again, it's like a soap opera. You read the myths and they're a divine soap opera. It's exactly what they are. It's interesting that the food that God tells them to use is actually edible. Now, they could have gotten some kind of food that you know, nobody would have eaten and laid that before him, but that's not what he asked for. He asks for bread in a certain way. And he oftentimes tells them to put oil on it or puts other spices on it and do certain things with it. When they would kill the uh, ram or the calf, they would prepare it and they would cook, they would burn all, all of some things up. Other times they would keep the, the hind quarter and the priest would be able to eat that. Now you have to remember again, in their world, in Moses' world, remember he was raised in the University of Egypt. That's where he got his degree from was the University of Egypt. So he knew paganism in and out. Remember, he was a prince, right? He graduated from their school. And he knew all the myths that they would have taught. He knew all the gods that they would have taught. One of the, sun, the sun god being one of the most important. So the priest in their world was actually God. He, wasn't, he was an avatar of God, is what we call it, or an image of God. He represented God, just like that holy prostitute would have represented. Prostitutes could be male and female. Um, so, you have in this world a continuity of nature, humanity, and deity. They're all one. You, you, look, at, you look at Pharaoh, for instance, he is God to them. He was the son of God. The son of who? Ray. Who is Ray? The son. Or as they call him, Ra. So, the priest, when he ate, he was God, eating the meal. Now again, I ask, is that what's going on in the Old Testament? Because again, it's tough for us to connect, right? I mean, we're sitting here reading and we're like, why all these regulations? Why all these specifications? You know, offer this food here and this food there and for this reason. And and you know what's interesting in the Old Testament? I know this is something I'm just learning. Even though I've been a student of the Old Testament for some time is 
there's not a lot of explanation given for this. God doesn't say, leave bread on this table. Because what they would do, they had two rows on this table of bread stacked in six pieces each, which would equal, obviously, twelve loaves of bread. And every Sabbath, which would be Saturday, they would change it out. They would cook it on Friday and come bring the fresh bread on Saturday, remove the weak old bread, and they would eat it, the priest would, in a holy place. So the holy people, priests, would be the eating it in a holy place. You couldn't just distribute it out to anybody. Okay? Now, again, why? We're not given why in the Old Testament. There's, there, there's, did you see an explanation in that little bit? Because then he moves on to the menorah, the lampstand. And again, there's no explanation. Why this light? Why this candlestick? Why the veil? And it's just not given. Now, in, as New Testament Christians, we like to jump ahead and say, oh, well, hang on, there's some significance here and we start pulling. But for them, let's enter into their world. God didn't tell them why. He said, do it. So the question remains, did they think they were feeding God? (laughs) Did they think He needed the food? Now, think of Noah. What happens when he gets off the boat? He offers a sacrifice, right? And what does it say about his sacrifice? God found it a pleasing aroma. (laughs) It's like an apple pie being baked in your house. You're going to get hungry if you smell that. Or cinnamon rolls, whatever it is you like. You're going to like that. I mean, you're going to be like, man, that, that stuff smells great, Jessica, which is what I often say when she's cooking something. Well, every time she's cooking something, I say that, no matter what it is. I'm not very picky. You know, is God just sitting up in heaven going, oh, good, they're finally cooking me some breakfast, you know? Does He need that? And how do we know? Because look, that was the reality. Let me reemphasize. I don't want to beat a dead horse, but let me reemphasize. For everybody else in the ancient world, they understood it as you are feeding the gods. That was our job. That was actually humans' only job in the world, was to feed the gods. We had no other purpose other than to feed the gods. That was the only reason we were even made by them. We were an afterthought. Let's begin to answer this. Because the answer is obviously what? No. But how do we know that? How do we know the answer is no? Well, we have to begin with creation. I mean, let's just go back to the beginning, which is always the safest thing to do theologically. If you have a theological question, always go back to creation. (laughs) Always go back to Genesis first. What happens in Genesis? Does God need us? Is that why He creates us? Because in all the myths, the gods actually need us to feed them. Without us, they're going to die. Which is why in their flood account, they have to save Utnapishtim, who is the type of Noah, because, man, they realize at the last minute this flood's going to kill all the humans and we're going to die if they all die. And as soon as he offers his sacrifice, they come like flies to the offering. Exactly what happens in the, uh, in the Babylonian creation account. Well, is that what's going on here? No. Why? Because God doesn't need anything. He's not a part of the created world. He is not the creation. That is, maybe you don't realize that is the strongest theological thing that God could have taught them in the beginning was, I am not the world. Because everybody else thought He was. 
Everybody, you know, you know how they got to understand who the gods were is by looking at nature, by looking at humans, and then saying, "That's exactly what the gods are like, except on a grander scale. They're just like us. They need sleep. They need food. They cheat on each other. They lie, because that's what we do. But that's not what Yahweh does." That's one of the first things He teaches them. I am not you. And I'm not this world. He creates everything in the world, but He is not the world. He can't be manipulated by the world or by some kind of aroma. Woo, I think I'll do it now that you did that. You know, Now that you paid me that apple pie, buddy, I'm going to give you that car, baby. You, know? you bring the right steak in here and it's going to happen for you. No. Because He is not the world, because He is what we call transcendent, separate from this world, we can't manipulate Him. We can't twist His arm. We can't catch Him in a good mood or a bad mood. You know, because you can do that with humans, right? You, you know when to catch your spouse at the right time. You, you, know, you know what strings to pull. Let me tell you something about God. This is very serious. You cannot pull any strings on God. You can never manipulate God to do anything. You can't get Him to do anything. You can't catch Him at a bad time, and you can't catch Him at a good time. You can't twist His arm. Number two, He revealed Himself to Noah, in particular to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, that sums up the whole Genesis, all of Genesis, right? Without any type of sacrificial system. He didn't need their food. Now, they offered them stuff, right? We know that, uh, for instance, Abraham gives a 10% to uh, this cat Melchizedek. That was an interesting guy that we'll have to talk about later. But he gives 10% to him as an offering. But there's, God does not say, Abraham, here's the way to serve me. Here's the way to worship me is by killing a lamb or a ram or whatever. He doesn't give him that. So Abraham meets God and God reveals himself to Abraham without food involved. So again, God doesn't need Abraham's food. He doesn't need Jacob's food or Isaac's food. Not only that, when he makes covenant with Abraham, that covenant of being a special people and the covenant with Moses of being, you know, here's how to be my people, that is what is most important. What is a covenant? A covenant is a legal relationship. Just like a marriage is. It's a binding legal relationship. It's a formal relationship. Just like you did with your house. You know, you went into covenant with whatever bank you said would give you $200,000 or whatever it was. Alright? That's a legal covenant. God first, notice this, very important. God first makes covenant with His people. Then He tells them the law. So you have the law which is not the way to God, but instead how to walk with God. Alright, so the law is saying, here's how you walk with me, but he doesn't even talk about how you walk with me before he comes and does stuff for us. Alright, so, are you following me? Law is inside of covenant. Law is not just out here 
it, it's like this. Let me, let me put it this way. Somebody just got a ticket that we know. So that, that law is sitting somewhere at, that, at Montgomery, right? That law is in Montgomery somewhere or in Washington, D.C., the laws that we have in our, in our nation, right? Very impersonal. They're just going to be enforced, blah, blah, blah. The kind of law that God gives them is inside of a relationship. It's like me asking Jackson to do something. Now, I help bring Jackson into the world, all right? I've also paid everything for him all these five years, almost six now. I've done everything. Without me, he would be nothing. That's the reality. And when I say, Jackson, I want you to do something for me, son. I want you to stop doing this, or I want you to start doing this. You see, that's what God is doing in the law. It's not just written somewhere way off in Never Never Land or in Washington, D.C. or Montgomery. Instead, it's written on His heart. And He's asking us to do certain things and to trust Him. Now, is Jackson going to understand everything I ask him to do? No. Trust me, he doesn't. Why can't I do that, Daddy? I can foresee things that he can't. You know, why can't I get on top of the monkey bars and balance myself up there? Well, it looks fun. I can do it. I've done it before, which is probably a bad example. Back in the day, in hindsight, you know. But the reality is, he can't. Why? Because he's going to break his arm. If he falls from that height, it's going to be bad. Which I already think he has a broken finger again. But anyway... It's another story. So, we'll tell you that after the fact. <clears throat> um, he did fall off. And why do I tell him certain things? I tell him, I have, you have to trust me, son. I can't, I'm not going to explain it. And you know what God is doing here in the Old Testament? We may not like it, but He's giving them some things to do and He's not telling them exactly why. Isn't that interesting? In the Old Testament, we don't get the full explanation of why. It's just do it. Now again, it looks like what the pagans are doing. Because they're also offering sacrifice. They're also offering food sacrifice. But it's nowhere near the same purpose because it's not the same God. Yahweh is totally different than the other gods because He's transcendent. He created everything. He doesn't need anything and yet He's asking them to do this. Why? It's the same reason I asked Jackson to do certain things. You know, he needs to start participating in the family. Can I clean up his toys? Yeah. Why do I make him do it? To teach him responsibility. Does he hate it? Yeah. Does he think it's a ball and chain? Yep. Did they think that at times? Yeah. But you know what? It was teaching them something about life. All right, not only that, remember the tabernacle. So you have, you have God is the creator, but he also is the revealer without a sacrificial system. And also the law is found within the covenant, this formal relationship that He's made with them, this personal relationship that He's made with them. But also, you find this showbread, as it's called, or this bread of the presence, inside of a tabernacle. What is a tabernacle? It's where God met with them. To tabernacle is to be there. God tabernacled with them. And He tabernacled in the New Testament in the flesh. In Jesus Christ. And we know there's a lot of similarities between the tabernacle and Jesus Christ. Because ultimately it was pointing there. But did they know that during that time? No, they didn't. They just had to be obedient. 
And because they were obedient, we can now enjoy the benefits of that. Isn't that how obedience works? When people aren't obedient, don't do their job, well, the play falls apart, for instance, in football. Oh man, my job's just to block this time? That really stinks. Well, if you miss a block, the guy's going to get tackled. Thanks a lot. And we've seen that happen. How important is a block on a great run? Oh, it's, it's everything. Obedience must be learned first before we go doing our own thing. We are children after all, right? We are His children. Just like the children of Israel. There's a reason they call them the children of Israel, you know? Because they really were. So you have the tabernacle. And I'm not going to go through all the different aspects of the tabernacle. It would bore you to death right now, I'm afraid. So, But also, look at this. He also gave them inside of the tabernacle a way to give Him gifts. A way to offer certain things to them. The reality is this. If everything is God's, then to help us be reminded that it is God's, we need to give. It's really the reason for our giving. Again, are we, you know, do we give here to try to pay God? Try to pay Him off? Or is this an offering? Is it an act of worship? Is it us saying, you know what, this wallet, the money that it represents in here, is not mine. This house is not ultimately mine, it's God's. And if I'm to ever remind myself of that, I need to give right off the top the best I have. So what's the best you have? Well, money. First fruits. It's exactly what is said in the Old Testament. You give your first fruits. To them, money wasn't that important as cattle. So what do they give? They give their best calf. Not the one that's got one eye missing and is limping around. You know, it's not at the end of the month, well, we'll just give whatever's left over. No, what God says is, you skim right off the top and you trust me this month. I know this month looks bad for you. Trust me, I know months like that. I live there all the time. And He says, right off the top, you give me a portion of that, 10%. And even over and beyond, offering-wise, you give me that in trust. Now that's trust, folks. That's trust. It's just like when I ask certain things of Jackson and Baylor and Bo. I'm asking, and it's in a, inside of a personal relationship. It's not just some law out here, alright, well, we got to give again, ball and chain, you know. But instead, He's asking us to do this for our own good. And you know the things that you ask your children to do is for their own good. I mean, Christopher was describing to me part of their trip and and something that he was able to do with Reagan for her good. And it actually turned out for her good in the end. She actually wasn't able to enjoy herself and the situation better because up front, she trusted him. And had to have some help trusting. But we all have to have help. And that's why we must continually offer our gifts to God to remind ourselves of what it is we're doing, what it is we have, what it is He's given to us. It's not our own. You know, again, is this thing about just us making money? Or is this God giving us the ability to make money? Again, two people doing the same thing but not doing the same thing. How do you view your job? Do you view it as just, oh yeah, this is my ability. I'm the one who does this. I don't need any help from anybody. 
Or is it, no, I've been given these gifts and I want to use them to glorify God. It's a very different way of going to work tomorrow. Do you work as unto God or as unto Bill? Who's your boss made up? You know, who do you work toward? Because what God says is even slaves should work as unto God. Now, none of you are slaves. You may feel like it at work, but you have no idea what slavery is like in the ancient world. And he's telling them, even as a slave, work as unto God. He's teaching them something. <laughs> Alright, so not only that, not only the tabernacle, and not only the gifts, but also notice here, he asked them to put this bread of presence before him always. So always be, you know, and throughout all of Israel's history, it's fascinating. Even, even after they get exiled and they come back to the land, they hardly have anything. You know what they first set up? One of the first things they set up is this bread of presence. That's how important they were. They knew it was important. Now, you remember they moved from a tabernacle, a tent, a mobile, you know, place where they can pack everything up and, and move it over here in the desert to a temple. But it's still the, the layout remains the same. That table remains in there. Now it's stolen by Nebuchadnezzar and these other people. They take, but they build it back. They re- and you know what? Today, even now, the Jews still keep a bread of presence. It was important. This is revelation. I know it's tough to kind of wade through some of these issues, but we're not ever going to understand the Eucharist Communion, the Lord's Supper, if we don't begin to understand what God has been teaching them for nearly 2,000 years in the Old Testament. There is a rich depth to be found here. Even within the law. And this is, this is Torah. This is God's instructions. So let me bring it down this morning. Stop with all the technical jargon and, and trying to line up things in Scripture. And just ask, what's going on here then? If, if the answer is no, if, if we're not feeding God, then what are we doing? What is He doing with us? If we're in this covenantal relationship, if He's got these guidelines for us to follow, these forms, religious... I mean, you talk, people talk about, oh, religion's a bad thing. There's a lot of religion in the Old Testament. There's a lot of religious claims in the New Testament. Religion's not bad. Dead religion is bad. The form, notice this, without the experience is what Christ would call dead religion. James would call dead religion. Dead works. The form is given to us, but is the experience there? That's what's key. The experience makes the difference. Uh, Just like in a marriage. Think with me of a marriage. 50-something percent of all marriages fail. That's depressing when you're going through premarital counseling with people. That means every other person that I marry, that marriage is not going to make it, statistically. That's even among Christians, by the way. I think the number is now like 56%. There's a lot of marriages, the form, a lot of formal covenants made that only remain a form and never an experience of love. If you don't love your mate, the form is not going to carry you through at the end of the day. 
Does that make sense to you? The form will not carry you through. Is the form bad? Is the fact that I remember Jessica's birthday every year bad? Is it, is it bad that I religiously remember our anniversary? Or religiously remember to tell her that I love her? I appreciate what she does? Is the form bad? No. But the real experience of love must be in my heart. We all know people who said they loved their mate and was cheating on them at the same time. Lying to them at the same time. Manipulating them at the same time that they were saying they loved them. That's the form without the real experience. And you know what? I think that's what's going on here. God is saying, you know what? I'm giving you guys a form, a way to worship me. I want you to set up a table. I want you to set up two piles of bread on that table and keep it before me always where I meet you, which is the tabernacle. I want you to do that. But if you don't understand me, if you don't know me, if you don't do it out of love, what's it worth? Go to 1 Corinthians 13. You can be martyred and it means nothing if it wasn't done in love. That's powerful. What is he pointing to? Not the fact he needs to be fed. It's the fact that we need to remember who he is. It's why we come to church every Sunday. We have to be reminded. Does God need us to come to church? Does He need us to show up here? No. What we should be doing here on Sunday morning, we have a form, right? It's in our bulletin. That's the form of worship that we follow. Is it dead? It can be. Is it alive? It can be. When you leave church, and you, I hear people say sometimes, Oh, that was, that was just a dead service. That's on you. That's on you. Because the form is not the experience inside. You must be experiencing God yourself. What we do here ought to be just a joyful time of experiencing together what we've been experiencing all week. That ought to be a powerful time. God has told us to meet together. We're being obedient by being... You're you're already being obedient by being here this morning. That's an act of obedience right there. But that's not enough. The form is not enough. You must experience God for yourself. It's not enough just to say, oh yeah, I know that He died for everybody's sins. No, you need to know that He died for your sins. They died for you. That you love God. That there really is a love for God in your heart. Not just in this church but in your own heart. You see, the form must have the experience. That's what we're dealing with here. That's what's going on here. Not only that, he's trying to teach them through having this bread there. I'm just using this as a kind of an example, this, this one section of the law. He's trying to teach them that he needs, or that, sorry, that we need him. Not he needs us. Remember, they're the ones who needed bread in a desert. And so what does He give them? He gives them manna. Bread from heaven. And of course, they complain even about that. Remember, we just read that in Numbers where they start complaining, we want meat, we don't just want this bread. They start whining, start complaining. I don't want stream beans, I want a sucker. I want a, I want a popsicle. I can hear my kids right now and it's starting to well up, you know. Anger. 
Why is it anger? Because we know when they say that, that they've disregarded their mother's hour and a half cooking for them, the sacrifice that we've made financially to cook them a good, healthy meal, and all they want is junk. And it makes you mad. And you know what? It made God mad in the Old Testament. You're not alone in that. Why? Because He's trying to teach them something. And when they are constantly ungrateful, whining, complaining, thinking they're in control and want to go back to a former life in Egypt, after all God has done, what ungrateful little brats. Which is exactly what we end up most of the time. We talk about going, oh, we had it so much better back then before we met God and blah, blah. That's about as bratty as you can get. Ungrateful as you can become. And I think what God is saying here by giving them this form, He's saying, no, you need to keep this bread fresh to remind yourself that that you need Me and that I am your nourishment. Isn't this what Jesus came saying? You know what, God? I am the bread of life. (laughs) He was that bread. That's what he was saying. You need me in the middle of the camp, which is where the tabernacle was. And on that table is the bread by which you're nourished by. And I want it there always fresh. Every single week changed out. Every single week you need to come and change this out. And maybe every single week you need to come and change this out. You need to offer yourself your own life, your own bread that you've made. Because bread can be kind of uh, allegorical for the money you make. You know, I'm bringing home the bread, honey. You know, um, you need to bring that bread to God and offer it to Him every single week. I think that's what's going on here. I think He's trying to teach them something. I think God is very didactic. I know He is. I don't think it. I know He is. Everything He does, He teaches us by. He's trying to reveal who He is and who we are and what we need. And lastly, I'll close with this. You shall set before me. I'm sorry, you shall set the bread of presence on the table before me always. It's the last verse we read in, in 30 of chapter 25. Presence in Hebrew is face. That's what it means, face. This is the bread of his face. The bread of his presence. That kind of puts a different twist on it. We talk about communion bread being Jesus' bread. I mean, it's Jesus' bread, His, his body and blood in, the, in a very similar way, very analogous way. In the Old Testament, God was saying, you know what? I want my food before you always. This is why we take communion every first Sunday. We want to have God's bread among us. Not just our restaurants, not just our food that we cook, but what God provides for us. And what does God provide for us? His very life. His very nourishment. His flesh and blood. He is the bread of life. And anyone who eats of Him will never be hungry again. Why? Because in your soul you hunger for something greater than what this world has to offer. Greater than what Rosie's has to offer or Taco Bell or anything else in this world. Your soul has a 
hunger for God that until it gets God, it'll never be satisfied. But once you taste of Him, taste and see that the Lord is good, right? You'll never be hungry again. Do you know God? Have you tasted and known Him, His bread? Or have you always just been eaten off of this world and the crumbs of this world? It'll never satisfy you. Are you willing to trust Him even when there is no explanation? Even when there is, the explanation is not clear? Are you willing to trust Him in the way forward? Even when you can't figure things out or, or quite see around the next corner? Are you going to trust Him to walk through that door? Sometimes He asks us to do certain things that are difficult to do. And we don't understand them. And you will not understand them, but instead what He's asking is for trust. Just like you ask your children to trust you as you teach them to obey, He asks us to trust Him. The first thing we must do, remember, in our relationship with God is fear Him. That's what Proverbs says. The beginning of all wisdom is fear of God, but it's not the end. Remember, the end is love. That's what He's really trying to get to. I teach Jackson when he's young to fear me so that when we're older, I can love him. Just like I did with my dad as we progressed in our relationship. It moved from fear to love. Do you fear God? Are you just in control? Are you providing all your meals? Are you letting Him provide them? Two people doing the same thing are not always doing the same thing. And everybody in here has come to worship, but are you doing the same thing? Is the experience there? If it's not, you're dead. You're dead in your sins. You're dead in the religion you're in. And there's no life in you. There must be a flame of life in you called the Holy Spirit. And He's here today to be received, to be taken into your soul as nourishment and true food. Let's all stand.